Last week in Acts chapter 7, we came to the end of Stephen's speech. It's a speech which started out innocently enough. It seemed like it was going to be a sort of almost detached historical overview of Israel's history. But we saw that Stephen picked the incidents that he chose to narrate with great care. They all bore down on the status of the question, the disputed question. Namely, who in fact is being faithful to the temple and to the Torah? And as the speech progressed, right, we saw that it intensified until at the end you have Stephen, who is the accused, becoming the accuser, the ferocious accuser. So to refresh our memory, here is the provocative end of the speech from last week. Stephen says this to the Sanhedrin, to the assembled crowd. He says, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So notice the relentless renunciation. It's heard in the repetition of the word you. You are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised. You always resist the Spirit. Your fathers killed the prophets. You betrayed and murdered the Christ. You received the law, and you didn't keep it. This, right, from a Hellenistic Jewish Christian to other ethnic Jews... It's a remarkable piece of biting rhetoric. In Christ, Stephen repudiates the council. And a huge swath of their history of covenant-breaking infidelity and violence. So the speech is over. It's the longest speech in the book of Acts. The speech is over, and Stephen has signed his death warrant. And so we'll make three points this morning. They're there in your bulletin. On the, outline, on the insert there, the uh, fill in the blank. Uh, the heavens opened the stoning and the last words. The heavens opened the stoning, the last words. So first, and critically, the heavens open. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. The prophets provoked rage. Jesus provoked rage. And now Stephen is about to feel the same rage. They were enraged, and it says they ground their teeth at him. So theirs is a kind of gnashing of teeth. A kind of a seething, right? A seething kind of overflowing anger. A murderous anger, which evokes the gnashing of teeth that characterizes hell itself. And in contrast to this fury, we're told, but he, right? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. They have been seized with something of a demonic spirit, but Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is God. Right? He's the radiant glory of God who fills the heaven temple, the true temple, of which the earthly temple is but a shadow. The Spirit is the beginning of glory begun in us. The Spirit is profoundly associated with glory. It's the down payment of the glory that's to come in you. And here, the Spirit helps Stephen, comes to his aid, the paraclete, the helper, comes to his aid by giving him precisely a vision of glory. But he, the text says, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. The Spirit directs our gaze to heaven. Even now, the Spirit creates spiritual people who are heavenly minded. The Spirit directs us not to the things that are visible, but behind the veil of visible things to the invisible realm. So, normally what happens is that the Spirit creates and sustains faith. The Spirit gives sovereign, supernatural faith to us. And Spirit-wrought faith in your heart is a mode of seeing. Spirit-wrought faith is a kind of seeing what is invisible, of seeing into the heavenly realm. Even now, by faith, you see the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 3 puts it this way. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or gazing. Right? The Christian life is a kind of beholding, gazing upon the glory. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. But you can't be transformed by your own moral effort. You're transformed by beholding the glory. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You become what you behold. You grasp what you gaze upon. You're conformed to what captivates your soul. Your interior vision is your future. We are being transformed into the glory we are gazing upon. And we are becoming then, Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 3, we are destined to become luminous reflections in soul and body, ethically and physically luminous. Reflections of the transfigured and glorified Christ. Reflections of the transfigured and glorified. This is what the Christian life is pointed at even now. And of that triune glory, shining in the face of Christ, of that effulgence, Stephen is here in our text given a privileged glimpse. He gazed into heaven and he saw, the text says, the glory of God. Not by faith, but it appears by direct 
vision. What you normally behold indirectly through a glass darkly by faith, Stephen sees directly. Can you imagine? How would it be possible to go back to your normal life after that? This is the beatific vision. Our blessedness, our beatitude, the goal and the end of Christian existence. Seeing God in his direct light, in his ineffable beauty and splendor. Not seeing God as you see him today. Refracted through the word and the sacraments. Beloved, we want this stuff to end. I've recommended before numerous times the collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. If you don't have it, you should have it. There's one called Heaven Desired. And here's what the prayer says. Oh, my Lord, may I arrive where the means of grace cease. Now, we talk about the means of grace a lot in the Reformed tradition, right? Word, sacrament, prayer. But we want to get to the place where there is no means of grace. The whole point of that sacrament is to make you hungry and thirsty for what that sacrament points to. Namely, the coming eschatological feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. If it's not doing that, then something fundamentally is askew with us there. We are waiting for the day where we get to the place where the means of grace cease. And this Puritan prayer continues like this. May I arrive where the means of grace cease, and I need no more to fast, to pray, to weep, to watch, to be tempted. Notice this, to attend preaching and sacraments. Right? We all love to come to church. I know that. But there's something deeper that should be happening to us, which is, I can't wait till I don't have to go to church. Till I can see the glory not refracted through a weak human preacher or spoken words or through sacraments so I can get a glimpse of what Stephen got a glimpse of. So I can get to that realm where the Puritan prayer continues, nothing defiles. There is no grief or sorrow or sin or death. We want this vision. We don't want it refracted, even through the created order. We want it face to face. We want the beautiful, eternal, ravished gazing that has commenced for Stephen even before his earthly tent is laid aside. He saw the glory of God, we're told, and Jesus standing. Right? The vision of the triune glory always has at its center the glory of Jesus Christ. To see God is to see Jesus. To see Jesus is to see the triune God. We never detach Jesus from the Trinity. We never sneak around Jesus to get to the Trinity. He saw the glory of God in and through the risen and exalted Christ who was standing. Jesus here is standing at the right hand of God. But here's a problem. Judges, including the divine judge... They usually sit on their thrones to administer judgment in their courts. Right? Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit 
on his glorious throne and judge the nations. Judges sit. This one is standing. I saw Jesus standing. This indicates two things. First, Stephen's judge has become his defense counsel, his advocate, and defense attorneys stand. Second, this standing is a kind of heavenly welcome for Stephen from his Savior, whose witness Stephen is now imitating and whose image Stephen now is bearing and whose glory Stephen now radiates. What a beautiful picture of Jesus standing in the heavenly court to defend his witness and to welcome him. And in verse 56, Stephen speaks and he tells the council what he sees. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man. The son of man here is the one we read of from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament lesson the triumphant and exalted one. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he sees into this open heaven temple, the true temple. Now remember, he is on trial for denigrating the earthly shadow temple. But now he accesses by sight heaven itself, and he sees Jesus, the Son of Man. And he sees him in all of his burning glory. This is the Jesus before whom John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1 falls down dead. He sees that Jesus. And he sees him ruling in the midst of his enemies. We are to behold now by faith. Faith which pierces the heavens. Faith which penetrates beyond the veil of the visible, right? What Stephen sees by sight. If you ask, how can I do this? I would say you you can cultivate this kind of faith by spending time with the texts that show you this Christ. Daniel 7, Revelation 1, Ezekiel 1, the transfiguration scene. There are scenes in scripture that will um, take the tameness out of your conception of Jesus. Spend time with those scenes. We want to see now, by faith, what Stephen sees by sight when the heavens are opened. So that's the heavens. The second point is the stoning. So verse 57. So you have the, the, there's a combination of things here. There's Stephen's indictment of the Sanhedrin. Then there's this declaration that he sees into heaven. And, by the way, the God of heaven and the Son of Man are on his side. They are his advocates. And this is more than they can bear. We're told they cried out in a loud voice. Right? It's an attempt to drown out his witness. They stop their ears. They stopped hearing. They're uncircumcised ears. They were triggered in modern language. And then you get a scene of bloodthirsty mob violence. Now, the Sanhedrin had the right 
to impose the death penalty for various violations of Jewish law. But Rome had suspended that right by this time. So this looks like an interrogation that's gotten out of control and the frenzied crowd has taken over. They rushed together at him, the text says. Right? This is the logic of the mob. People are capable of animalistic violence in crowds that they would never do alone. They rushed together at him. And they cast him, it says, out of the city. This is often missed in the stoning of Stephen. He's not just stoned right there in front of the court. They take him outside the boundaries of Jerusalem like an unclean animal. But you know who else suffered outside the gate, Hebrews tells us? Jesus suffered outside the city, outside the gate. Here we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city. We are seeking the city which is to come. We are seeking a better country, a heavenly one. They took him outside the city. Outside. Now get this. Stephen is cast outside the earthly Jerusalem. That's the city we're at here. But he's already a member of the Jerusalem from above. They cast him outside the city and they stoned him. Now, that is a brutal way to die. The novelist, Frederick Buchner, describes it as follows. He says, stoning somebody to death, especially somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, isn't easy. You don't get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles. And even after you've got the person down, it's a long, hot business. And he continues and says, to prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist. And they got somebody to keep an eye on their things till they were through. The one they got was a young, fire-breathing, arch-conservative Jew named Saul, who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. It's the end of the quote. So the witnesses, right, Luke's already called them false witnesses, They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's introduced for the first time in the book of Acts right here, who never forgot what he saw. Never. When he addressed a Jewish crowd near the temple years later in Acts 22, he says that this is what he spoke to the Lord. He said this, I I told the Lord, when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Stephen, Paul says, notice, is God's witness. Now, I know many of you know this, but the Greek word for witness comes into the English as our word martyr. Because so many witnesses died, you now associate martyrdom with dying for the faith. Stephen, right, Stephen means crown. His name means crown or wreath. And he is the first of a countless host of Christian martyrs. He is the first to gain such a glorious crown. All the rest of the martyrs, right? All the martyrs, we see them in Revelation chapter 6. They're in heaven. They're praying for vindication. They're resting. They're waiting, we're told there, for the full number of their fellow servants who are to be killed, 
who are also to be crowned. They are waiting for that number to be complete. That's the stoning. Finally then, Stephen's last words. Now you'll remember, right? Jesus gave us what we speak of as seven last words from the cross. Stephen, in imitation of the master, gives us two words. Nearly identical to two of Jesus' dying utterances. So Stephen is, as we've seen, an icon of Christ. He's partaking of the depths of Christ's sufferings, and he partakes in the same way of Christ's glory. And thus, as Peter puts it later, the spirit of God and glory rests upon him. As they were stoning him, verse 59 says, now bloodied, right, battered, mangled, a moment from death, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This evokes the seventh word of our Lord, who with his last breath cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We saw that in the gospel lesson. Now, there's two things to note here. First, what Jesus asked the Father, Stephen asked Jesus, thus equating Jesus with the Father. In fact, by calling Jesus Lord, Lord Jesus, he's equating him with the God of Israel, the God of the long speech he just gave. And doing that is not going to get any of the stones to stop flying. The second thing to notice here, and we've already touched on this, though, Stephen has access to prayer to the heavenly temple through the Messiah, through the mediator of the new and better covenant. There's an an acute kind of a contrast here that you shouldn't miss. A conjunction of suffering and glory. Trampled on the earth, Stephen's spirit is being received into the highest heavens, into the heaven temple, into light and into glory before the face of God. This is the story of the church. Documented in, say, 1 Peter and Revelation trampled in her outer estate, but victorious and reigning at the right hand of God in heaven, glorious in her suffering, strong in her weakness. Stephen is not only an icon of Christ, he's an icon of the church. This is an image of the church, and it's an image of the church at that table. That table, by the way, does the same two things. It lifts you up into heaven, and it sends you in the way of the cross the way of Jesus' broken body and blood in the earth. The same dynamic. Finally, Stephen, no longer able to stand, though remember, Stephen is no longer able to stand, but there is one who's standing for him. Christ stands for him. He falls to his knees. He cries out, Luke says here, with a loud voice. Now, earlier... They had cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And Luke has masterfully juxtaposed these two cries with loud voices. You've got the mob's cry. You've got Stephen's cry. The mob cries out with murderous rage. 
And Stephen, and this, this would take a miraculous infusion of energy from a person a few breaths away from dying. Stephen's cry drowns out their rage with the forgiveness of the gospel. It's a beautiful contrast of a love that is stronger than death. Right? Stronger than the calculus of coercion and bloodlust and violence. This is mercy in its sheer mastery over murder. So he addresses his Savior again in his final words in this body on this earth. And he imitates the one who said of his killers, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Here, Stephen varies it slightly, but the substance, right? The the unspeakable scandal of gospel mercy is the same. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Right? It's probing. We should ask ourselves, what is our attitude toward the wicked? Toward our enemies? Toward those who hate us? Toward those who would seek to kill us. This is Jesus' attitude, and this is Stephen's attitude. Right? This is walking in the footsteps of the Master. The one who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Right? Jesus, who, when he was threatened, refused to retaliate, but entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. This is the imitation of Christ. And as such, it's the heart of Christian public and Christian political witness. That is fellowship in the sufferings and in the comfort of Christ. Those are Stephen's last words while being murdered. Now, What people say when they are dying has always fascinated me because it reveals a lot, probably everything, about the state of their soul. When people come to die, if they are not just mere professors, but actual followers of Jesus Christ, if the fruit of the Spirit is present, when they come to die, there was always, or almost always, a new kind of clarity. At the end, beloved, at the end, everyone is heavenly-minded and eschatological. Everyone who's elect. Everyone who belongs. Life is like this. It's it's full of all of these opportunities and things to attend to, and it's broad, and there's, there's all these things to do. But it goes like this as you age, and it ends here. And as people get funneled down to that point, you can see the elect all of a sudden shift in their affections. There's a new kind of clarity. Everyone is heavenly minded at the end. There's a new kind of order and proportion about what matters that people often didn't even live with. And they recognize it. I've been with a lot of dying people. They recognize I should have had this disposition decades ago. Tim Keller spoke of this happening when he was diagnosed with his stage 4 pancreatic cancer. 
And it's not like he was sitting around doing nothing. Right? He's responsible for planting, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand or more churches worldwide. He wrote 20-something books. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them, everything is irrelevant. He was laboring for the gospel. He said that after he got the diagnosis, he sat down with his wife, and they together realized that they were living in what he called a veil of illusion. What was the veil? Namely, that even though they were nearly 70 years old, they, they behaved day to day as if they were going to live forever. He said, I was living in this veil of illusion that I was never going to, to go into the highest heavens and look upon the face of God. What happens, right, after a diagnosis is he said, and these are, this is, I'm paraphrasing, he said this, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, just like they did for Stephen. For us, tragically, life is often the opposite. The things of heaven grow strangely dim in the light of all of earth's glory and distraction. But for Stephen, already irradiated with the heavenly glory, gazing into the open heaven, seeing the glory of God, seeing the Son of Man, for such a one, the things of the earth. Think of what Stephen's leaving behind. Think of all the things Stephen never got to accomplish or enjoy. All the things of the earth, including the good ones, are strangely dim to Stephen. What matchless, exquisite last words. By the way, Keller's last words ended up being, take me home, I'm ready to see Jesus, I can't wait to see Jesus. That's what the elect say when they die. Stephen's exquisite last words are, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Right? The inner mystery, you talk about being laid bare before heaven and earth, right? The inner mystery of Stephen's heart is opened up before the whole world. In, you know, in the midst of a mob gnashing their teeth and seething, right, we see who this person is. And there's no hatred in this heart of Stephen's. There's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's no lust for revenge. The most mild kind of political and personal slights set us into a frenzy of anger. There's none of that in the soul of this, this young Christian witness. There is, from this one, now remember, Stephen is no wallflower. He just delivered a blistering prophetic denunciation of these people that got him killed. But there is here at root in his heart nothing but the pure, unadulterated love of God for sinners. Right? That's how he sees them. He doesn't see them as enemies except to love them as enemies, right? Sinners. Here's Tennyson, the, the 19th century British poet, on this scene with Stephen. He says this. He heeded not reviling tones nor sold his heart to idle moans, though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones. But looking upward, full of grace, he prayed, and from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. From very early on, very early on, the church would celebrate feast days, 
commemorating the martyrs on the anniversaries of their martyrdom. And they would often do it over the tombs or near the tombs of the martyrs. Right? They knew that the martyrs had entered Christ's passions and Christ's sufferings, Christ's disfigured glory. Christ's disfigured glory in a profound way. And that participation is something the church has always honored. They saw it as a stimulus to fidelity. In the martyrs, then, we have the essence, the distilled pure essence of what it means to image Jesus Christ in this world. Beloved, please hear me here. These are not heroic exceptions. These are patterns for us. Right? You don't get to order off the menu, I'd like to order the no martyr version of Christianity, please. Right? Martyrdom is just witness. Even apart from dying for the faith, it's the essence of Christianity. You have died with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We daily die to sin, to the passions, to our disordered selves, to the world. We are called to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. All witness bearers are crucified witness bearers. There's no two-tier thing going on here. So we celebrate and we honor Stephen because of the one he imaged. Because of Jesus, who is the faithful witness. Jesus, upon whose witness, whose perfect obedience, all other witnesses depend. And by whose blood alone, because no other blood avails. But by the blood of Jesus, the martyr witness, Stephen and all the martyrs are redeemed. But the martyrs are so helpful because they point us to that Christ. To that conjunction of suffering and glory perpetually reminding us to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And finally, we're told here, when he said this, Stephen fell asleep. The brutality of the death ends in tranquil light. Just a beautiful, peaceful sleep. A disfigured Stephen whose mother could barely identify him. Just a nap, Luke says, a resting in the glory of heaven and an awaiting of the resurrection. And chapter 8, verse 1 tells us bluntly, and Saul approved of his execution. Not knowing, by the way, that he would shortly become a follower of this Christ and would himself be numbered among the martyrs of this Christ. The Christ who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. The Christ who is the faithful and true witness. The Christ whose glorified face we long to see when heaven is opened for us as it was opened for Stephen. Right? The martyr who by the gospel makes us martyrs. The martyr who is worshipped by the throng of martyrs. That is by the throng of all the redeemed. Christ the martyr who Stephen glimpsed by sight in heavenly glory. Christ the exalted, enthroned Son of Man. Amen.